had uh, some wounds on my legs. And my mom saw them and I freaked out. She kind of cornered me and said, you're not leaving this room before you tell me what's going on because I'm super scared. Everyone who has lived experience of self-injury has a story. We, as people, are changed by stories. And when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, every story matters. Today, we had the privilege of hearing one of these stories that I hope will inspire, humble, challenge, and encourage you. Joining me all the way from Switzerland is founder of Self-Harmer Problems YouTube and Instagram pages, Malika. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Malika is 22 years old, from Switzerland, and a student in social work. She started Self-Harmer Problems Instagram and YouTube channel in 2016 after having lived experience of self-injury to share her experience and to promote peer support in self-injury education. She also just launched her website, selfharmerproblems.org, at the beginning of this month. Thank you for joining us today, Malika. Oh, thank you. I would love for us to understand a little bit about your story, and I wanted to start with just simply asking, using general terms, what was it that you did that was a form of self-harm or self-injury? So it started out as biting, biting myself, mainly my my arms. This was how it all started out. And then it progressively got worse. I think I had a brief period of uh, scratching myself, but very quickly it got to cutting. And that was my main form for uh, most of my self-harm periods of time. When was it that you started? How old were you? I was 14 years old. I was in the last year of obligatory school here in Switzerland. And what was it that it did for you? So in other words, why did you start self-injuring at that time? That's a very good question and I've been asked a lot uh, over the years with, with doing self-harm problems and all of that. And honestly, I can't give you just one answer. And that's uh, part of my story is that I didn't have a bad childhood. I didn't have any traumatic events or anything like that. I think it was a mixture of me, me being in my teenagers having to figure life out, a bit of bullying too, even though I didn't really recognize it uh, as such at the time. And I think there was a part of depression setting in that I also didn't recognize as depression for a long time. And I think this is something that is very important for people to hear too, because often when you hear stories of people self-harming, it's because uh, they had uh, an experience with sexual abuse or with grief, someone died, or they, they had a traumatic event that led them to self-harm. And of course, that's a completely valid experience. All experiences are valid. But in my experience, I had a very happy and great childhood. I have a loving family, yet I still started self-harming and I still had issues with mental illness. I think that's a key point uh, that you bring up as far as individuals who self-injured don't always come from really difficult backgrounds. Many do, of course, but not everyone. Sometimes I'll tell parents that you could raise your child in the best environment with all the love that you can, and just like you can't stop them from breaking a leg, you can't necessarily stop them from experiencing a mental health disorder or something like self-injury or depression. Yeah, not everyone that self-injures has 
trauma experience or any type of abuse. And I, and I also like what you said as far as you're a teenager. You'd never been a teenager before, so you're learning life and trying to figure out how to cope. Exactly, yeah. And in what way did self-injury help you? Well, one thing for sure I couldn't have explained it at the time. I was way too confused and in my head to explain it. But looking back, I think it's um, mainly got down to emotional regulation and finding an outlet for all those very intense feelings uh, that came with being a teenager and with figuring life out. All the fear, the angst, all the those crazy emotions that you have with hormones and all of that. I think it was a great, not a great way, but an efficient, sadly efficient way to release all of them. And I think at times it also was a way to relieve numbness because I think I'm a very sensitive person and sometimes I'm so sensitive that I overwhelm myself and then I shut off. And then I feel like I need something very strong to kind of shake me up and wake me up. And I think self-harm had both of those purposes. It was a way to relieve when to relieve myself when I had too many emotions, but I think it also was a way to relieve myself with when I didn't feel anything at all. I think it really had both purposes. I know research shows that uh, there's usually two types of motivations behind self-harm, interpersonal and intrapersonal. I never really identified with the uh, social reasons. I, the, it definitely wasn't a um, peer pressure thing for me or something that was a way for me to get help. It really was a way to manage my own emotions. How did you come about self-injuring? Is it something that you had heard about before or did you just try it once and think that you came up with it and it worked for you in that moment? Or how did you first come to decide to self-injure? I had encountered people that uh, were self-harming and ironically, the first two people that I encountered that uh, had experiences with self-harm were both men and they were both a grown men. So that's quite contrary to what the popular misconceptions would say, but that was my experience. So I had a few encounters with self-harmers, but never really thinking much about it and never really thinking that was an option for me. And then all of a sudden my emotions were too high and I needed something and I don't really know how first the idea of binding myself came about, but I must have realized it was helping me and then it got worse and worse like it does with most addictions, sadly. So you're 22 now. You started self-injuring when you were 14. How long were you self-injuring until your parents found out? It was a whole year before they found out. My mom had suspicions because that's how she is. My dad had no idea, but I was I became very good at lying in that year. I became a very good liar, way better than I am today. I got in her head and I made her believe that I was okay because I was so scared of them finding out. How did you persuade them or tell them that you were okay when you were not? Well, first I was hiding, mostly hiding my, my wounds. And then whenever she asked me, I told her very in a very persuasive way that I was fine and she was over-exaggerating and all of that. And I was very secretive about all of this. Over the years, some of the explanations I've heard from young people in particular is like, the cat scratched me. Yeah, I did this one. I did the cat excuse. I came up with crazy excuses too. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to come to terms and disclose to their parents yeah. and tell them that they've been self-injuring out of fear of how they might respond. And you said you were pretty secretive about your behavior with them. Why is that? What made you decide to not disclose, not to tell your parents at the time? Well, it definitely wasn't that I didn't trust them or that I didn't 
think they could help me because we had a good relationship. It wasn't that they were abusive or anything like that or that I didn't trust them. I think it came down to wanting to protect them, not wanting to upset them because as they should have been, they were very upset when they found out. Not really upset with me, but upset that I was hurting that bad. So you were 14 and it was about a year later that they found out is what you had said. How did they find out? It was a complete accident. I think I got a bit overconfident with uh, what I could get away with. Like I think a lot of people do. You don't get caught once, twice, 10 times, and you get a bit overconfident. And so uh, that night I decided to wear shorts, which I usually never do. And I had uh, some wounds on my legs and my mom saw them and I freaked out. She kind of cornered me and said, you're not leaving this room before you tell me what's going on because I'm super scared. And that's how she found out. Over the years when I've told this story, a lot of people ask me if maybe it was me unconsciously seeking help because it definitely sounds like it when you hear it. But I personally really don't think it was because I was so, so scared of them finding out. And I would go to crazy, crazy extent for them not to find out. And I would spend so much time trying to find ways for them not to th- not to find out and all of that. So I personally don't think it was my subconscious trying to get help. But that's how she found out. And then she told my dad. And that's how I got help, finally. You put in so much energy in hiding yeah. this from your parents for a good year. And then it sounds like you were really fearful of how they might respond. And then you had also just said that you freaked out when your mom found out. And then you went into your room and then she cornered you. Yeah, actually, I didn't even, I couldn't even leave the room. We were watching TV with me and my little sister and my mom. My little sister made a comment about why do you have wounds on your legs again or something like that? Because she probably felt that something was off too. And I brushed it off again, like, it's nothing, I fell off, probably it's the cat, something crazy like that. Then my mom got the sense that this wasn't what uh, wounds that you get when you fall look like. And I got very defensive and she saw it wasn't normal and all of that. And that's how it all came to light. When you said you freaked out, you mean you became defensive? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what you mean by what happened in that moment when you freaked out and what that might have done, how your mom responded in that moment. Yeah, exactly. I think I became very defensive and she sensed that I got very defensive and tried to find out why I was like this. So then you told her and she was like, you're not leaving until you tell me what's going on. How did she respond to that? I think she was very, very, very shocked. First, because... I think she sensed that I wasn't doing well, but I don't think she had sense that I was doing this bad. The second part of it is that she didn't know it was a thing. And she's a nurse, so she's not, she shouldn't have been completely clueless because in my opinion, nurses should be trained in self-harm. But she only knew, she told me afterwards that she only knew about self-harm in very, very mentally ill patients, uh, patients with psychosis and with what society would consider as crazy, even though I don't like that term. And you probably don't either, from what I see. <laughs> and she knew about it in uh, people with severe, uh, men- uh, how, how do you say it in French? Yeah, severe mental illness. Uh, yeah, with severe mental illness and with severe intellectual disabilities, people with Down syndrome, people with autism and all of that, because she had worked with those people and she had seen it in, mm-hmm. in those people. But in people that didn't have psychosis or didn't have 
intellectual disabilities like I don't. She didn't know it was a thing, so she was very, very shocked. And then she was the one that told your father. Yeah. How did he respond? I think he was extremely shocked too. They don't work really the same way. I think my mom really needed to find a way to make things better, to get me treatment and all of that. And my dad was so shocked that he kind of froze. He didn't really know what to do. They both were very supportive. None of them uh, yelled at me. None of them were judgmental to me. But they were for sure very shocked and very confused on what was going on and why I was doing this. And how could it have gone this bad and they hadn't noticed much? That's a fair response from your parents. Shocked. For your mom, she didn't know self-injury aside from those with severe mental illness or autism spectrum disorders. And you didn't have either of those. And also you did not have any abusive childhood or or significant trauma, like you had said earlier. And so shocked. That makes sense why they would be shocked and concerned. And it sounds like, though, they responded pretty well overall. Is that what I'm gathering? Yeah, definitely. At what point did you seek treatment? Uh, So they seek treatment for me, my mom, especially right away. Next morning, I was at the doctor's office with her, a family doctor, to see what could be done for my wounds and what could be done for my overall treatment, which I think was a very great move. Sadly, uh, which is kind of to be expected, but should not be to be expected, is that my family doctor didn't know much about self-harm either. The overall sense that I personally got from that consultation was that he had seen way worse. I think he even said it like, I have seen way worse in an attempt to reassure my mom and me, but mostly my mom, that I wasn't completely gone and hadn't completely uh, turned crazy and that it, it maybe wasn't as bad as she was expecting it to be. And that I didn't need treatment for my wounds or mainly it was too late to treat them because it was too late for stitches anyway. And that I could still uh, have some kind of treatment. But basically, like, some therapy could be useful. It's an interesting reaction from your primary care physician. I know one of my roles here at Children's Health and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Texas, where I am, is that we make sure we train the pediatricians in responding and addressing self-injury in a low-key, dispassionate demeanor and a respectful curiosity, much like Dr. Barry Walsh will say. Your primary care physician was focusing more on your mother's concern by reassuring her that it's, oh, it's not that bad. At the same time, 15-year-old you is probably thinking, not bad. And Yeah, what does it mean to be bad? Do I need to cut my arm off? Yeah, and so it sounds like he was thinking he's seen far worse to reassure your mother, but probably invalidate your experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Your mom had thought that seeking therapy would be beneficial and helpful for you. And so this is the next day after finding out, she sets this appointment up with your primary care physician. How long was it until you were able to see a therapist? Well, it actually was at least a month because at first I didn't see a therapist. I saw another family doctor, which actually was his wife, that also did kind of therapy work uh, on the side, which uh, I don't think was enough for me, at least at the time. So I was seeing her something like once a week for a month. And she was trying to do some types of CBT exercises with me and having me write down journals when I would would self-harm and all of that, which was not working for me at all. I've had trouble with CBT. I find it very, very helpful. I think it's research shows it to be the best type of treatment, at least for addiction or one of the helpful ones. But I've always had issues with it and especially journal type things. Oh my God, so hard for me, especially at that stage where I was super confused, super depressed, super anxious. 
I just could not do it. So at the same time, she was doing, uh, she was giving me tests for depression to see if I had depression, see if I had anxiety, at least anything that was diagnosable. And so that lasted a month before I had another type of treatment. CBT is great. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy for those listening that may not know. It's great. Journaling is great. I'm a big fan of journaling, but I also recognize it's not for everyone. Everyone is unique and different things work better for different people when it comes to coping and processing emotions. Journaling was not your, wasn't what was helpful for you. No, definitely. I I think it could be helpful for me. And I got CBT uh, therapy later and it was very helpful. This is what the type of therapy I had afterwards. But with someone that was an actual psychologist and in a time where it wasn't crisis mode anymore. So I had some strength to put into therapy i hadn't i don't i didn't have any strength left to do any type of therapy work anymore when you were seeing this new psychologist doing cognitive behavioral therapy cbt what did you find was most helpful about being in therapy well first i struggle to say it was actually therapy because she wasn't a therapist she was a general doctor who did kind of therapy work who probably had some training in cbt but wasn't wasn't a therapist so didn't have all the knowledge and all the education to put in therapy work what i found the most helpful i think it was getting diagnosed overall which it, it came at the end of that month but i think getting diagnosed with clinical depression was what was most helpful because then it led to more help. Sometimes just having a name for our experiences can really bring a lot of relief to know that we're not alone and it's not like something that's crazy. It's relatively common and treatable and can respond well to treatment. To clarify, so you saw your family physician, family doctor, who sent you to his wife for about a month. And then after that month, you saw a psychologist? What happened after that month is that we had a meeting with the doctor, me and my parents to see how things were going and things were not going great. The self-harm hadn't stopped. Actually, it had stopped, but came back. It only stopped for a couple of days because I couldn't manage without it. And I had been diagnosed with clinical depression and I had came out more and more about my suicidal tendencies and ideation. And I think this is what's really put the nail in the coffin for me. If you can call being hospitalized a coffin, I don't think it's the great analogy I've come up with. But I think it was the determining factor in what came afterwards. Because uh, what happened is that, so I'm in this doctor's office with my parents and things are not going great. I'm not doing better. My mom, again, says, well, I'm too scared for her. I don't want to find her dead one morning in her room because she has committed suicide. If she's suicidal... I don't want it at home because it's too dangerous for her. I think she should go to hospital. And the doctor agreed. I reluctantly agreed because I think I knew I needed it because I was in too much danger. I know one of the assumptions a lot of people make is that if someone is self-injuring, self-harming, then that means they're also suicidal and thinking about dying. And for some people, they might think about suicide when they self-injure, but not for everyone. When you were self-harming, when you were self-injuring, in those moments, did you also have suicidal thoughts? Or when you self-injured, were there no suicidal thoughts? I don't think I had thoughts of suicide when I was self-harming. I think I was suicidal most of the day. So I probably have had occasions where I was suicidal and self-harming at the same time. And I think both kind of fueled each other because usually bad coping skills don't make you feel very great. And so if you're not feeling great, then you're more suicidal. But 
I don't think uh, when I was self-harming that I was actively trying to kill myself. I don't think it was the same as suicide attempts. I've never attempted suicide, so I couldn't say for sure, at least for me. But I don't think those two things were the same thing. So you went to an inpatient program? Yeah. How long were you there for? I was there for six weeks in total, and I was in two separate units for three weeks at a time each time. So first off, what happened is that they didn't have any space left in the teen psych ward for now, for the... Um, the time they wanted me admitted. So I first had to wait for six weeks in the pediatric ward, where they often also had cases of children that were mentally ill and needed hospital care. So I waited there for three weeks, and then I got transferred in the teen psych ward. For six weeks, you were in an inpatient program. Yes. What was your experience like there? My experience in the pediatric ward and in the teen psych ward were very different. Firstly, because the pediatric ward was an open general hospital ward, so it was not a closed ward. If I had wanted to, I could have run off. I didn't, but I could have. I could have as many visitors as I wanted to. I wasn't searched when I came in and all of that. And the staff was compassionate with me and with my parents. My parents never felt blamed by them. They weren't experts in teen psychology, I guess you could say. I think I needed more support than what they could give me, but it was a very different experience than what I had the next three weeks. It still was quite shocking of an experience because all of a sudden I was in a hospital bed just a few hours after I left my appointment with the doctor. It was the same night. I was in the waiting room and then admitted. And yeah, it was very surreal to all of a sudden be in a ward and you're like, oh my God, how did I end up here? What happened? It still was quite surreal and really made it sink in that, wow, I wasn't doing well and I needed to do something about it. But then I went to the teen psych ward and my experience there was very different. Firstly, because like I mentioned, it was a closed ward, which I think I needed, but the attitude of the staff and how they went about it, I felt was very intrusive. And very, it didn't make me feel good. And it really felt uh, like you were, um, it's hard to talk about. I'm realizing I think it's harder than I think. And God damn it, it's been almost yeah. seven years. It felt yeah. extremely uh, claustrophobic to be in that environment with everything closed off, not being able to go outside like I wanted, being searched, being searched when I came in having my loved ones being searched and all of that. And some of the staff really weren't nice about it. It kind of felt like you were in prison. Mm. Yeah, you used the word intrusive. Yeah. And if they're searching you, yeah. I mean, very uncomfortable. Yeah. It made me even more sneaky. And they weren't doing a great job about it. And I still cut almost all the way through my stay there. So it wasn't even working. It just made me extremely sneaky and hiding blades. I think that's a fair point, though, because parents in particular worry that their child, if they go to an inpatient program, might learn strategies or come up with new strategies to hide these kinds of behaviors, whereas others, their child gets help and they find improvement. For you, you were in six weeks of treatment on in an inpatient program, three weeks in the pediatric program, three weeks in the adolescent program, and this happened very fast. You were admitted very quickly. Overall, it sounded like you were alluding to that it was really helpful and important for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know it's very hard to describe because on one hand, it was a traumatic experience and I've had issues afterwards that were because I got hospitalized and I had some form of trauma coming from it. But at the same time, I truly don't think I would be here if I hadn't been 
through this experience and I hadn't gotten this help and this safety. And same about being searched and being in a closed ward. I feel very conflicted about all of this because at the same time, I think I needed it. I think I was a real danger to myself. I think I needed that super close supervision. But I think I also needed very tender, gentle, loving care. And that's not really what I got there. I got something that was quite harsh. I'm not entirely blaming the staff here. They probably were completely understaffed. They had a very hard job that I definitely couldn't do, even as a student in social work, because it would be getting too close to home. They were seeing awful things all day long. So, of course, you come, you become blunt out emotionally. So that's one thing. But it was a harsh environment, definitely. The first few weeks, you received some compassionate care. But then when you went to the adolescent program, whether they were understaffed or not, I think what you were alluding to is provider stigma, where providers, clinicians, have a certain assumption about certain behaviors or mental health diagnoses and treat them a certain way because they have a preconceived notion of what that person is like. And that interferes with their ability to be compassionate. They're also seeing, like you said, families in crisis. They're seeing people at their most scariest points, at their most critical points, and that can be overwhelming as a professional, but they still need to make sure that they're engaging in self-care and, and keeping families and children, adolescents, teenagers at the forefront and the best interest of them. So, well, thank you for sharing your experience there. I'm sorry it wasn't the best, but it sounds like there was some silver lining to that cloud of unfortunate experiences that you had there. One last question related to that. When you were admitted, were you admitted for the self-harm, the self-injury, or were you admitted for the suicidal thoughts? I think I was primarily admitted for suicidal ideation. I don't think that if I had came and I, quote-unquote, only was self-harming, because to me, I don't like saying it's only self-harm, but I don't think I would have been admitted, or maybe not as quickly, or maybe not in the teen-psych wards. I think if I wasn't suicidal, I wouldn't have been admitted, honestly, which I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but I think it's how it would have gone. Yeah. After you were discharged, after you left the hospital, those six weeks in that program, did you continue with therapy outpatient as yeah, well? Yeah, definitely. Actually, the day I left the teen psych ward was my first appointment for therapy. And I found an amazing therapist that I love, that helped me so much, and that I saw for three years, I think, maybe two, something like that, a few years. What was it about that therapist or therapy with that therapist that was most helpful? Ultimately, I, th I think it was how patient she was and how nice she was. I think that's often what's the most important in therapy. She wasn't judgmental. She wasn't uh, trying to make me uh, say things that I wasn't wanting to say. She was uh, very helpful with my parents as well, because that's something I didn't mention in the um, teen psych ward is that like you said, they see so many families in deep, deep crisis that aren't even really crisis because it's always like that. Very dysfunctional families. So they saw my family, which I don't think is more dysfunctional than most families. And they were nitpicking everything. And it was very, very hard, especially for my mom, because every time she would show any sign of weakness, that would be very normal when you have your 15-year-old daughter admitted for suicidal ideation. They told her she was weak and she was fragile. She felt like they were waiting for her to fail. It was a very hard time for my parents because they didn't felt listened to. They didn't felt taken care of. She had to do everything by herself to find me a therapist, do all the phone calls, 
it was a very hard time for my parents too. Wow. I'm, I mean, I'm sorry to hear that both you and your parents had that kind of experience. I know that's not uncommon, but I also know there are some great programs. There are some yeah. great therapists and clinicians, and it sounds like your mom got you connected to an excellent yeah, one. I'm realizing that I'm telling a lot of negative things about hospital and hospital stays. Like you said, there definitely was a silver lining. One that I can mention for sure is medication. The doctor I was seeing before I got admitted didn't want to prescribe me any medication, which I don't really know why. I imagine it's because with some people you can have higher suicidal ideation at the beginning when you're starting on antidepressants. So I guess this is why she didn't want to prescribe me any. But since I already was supervised 24-7, I could start medication for both my mood and my sleep. And that was a tremendous help. It really, really helped me out. And this is one of the biggest thing I got out of being hospitalized. And this is something I could never repay was invaluable help. That's a good positive that came out of it. Thinking about your two to three years with that therapist that was really helpful, was that a time that you had stopped self-injuring or what came of the self-injury during your course of therapy? I think it slowly stopped over time. It wasn't even that long before I stopped. I think it stopped quite shortly afterwards because I was getting the help I needed. My mood was more stable thanks to the medication. I think it stopped rather quickly, not in a week or a day, but quite quickly. I think by the time I was 16, I had stopped. And I know for some people, when they experience significant amounts of stress, they might turn back to self-injury or some other coping strategies that may not be the best for their physical health or other form of health. Have there been times that you have struggled like that? I don't think I've had a relapse, at least in terms of cutting. But then I think there is a gray area where I know that when I'm in deep distress, it's still my my first mechanism. I think there might have been some times where I've done things that weren't in my best interest, but I don't think I've had a relapse or lapse in terms of purely self-harm, biting, hitting myself or cutting myself. That's great. So when you have felt emotionally overwhelmed and you think about self-injuring, because it sounds like some of those thoughts may still be there or had been there, at least in your late teenage years, what did you do instead? How did you manage? They're still there today, not not literally today because I'm doing fine today but yeah definitely up to this day I still have urges I definitely have less than when I was 16 17 18 but I still have urges to this day because I think once you're addicted at least in my case urges are still there uh, even after many years of not self-harming how did I cope I'm actually not very good at answering that question because I think I've picked up things over the years that helped me and that became unconscious, actually. And I, I'm not very good at being in touch with uh, myself, my emotions and all of that, even to, to this day. I think reaching out to loved ones, definitely writing to people, messaging them, calling them is one of my main coping skills. Having my boyfriend come over, having hugs, having laughter with people, I think it is my main coping skills as an extrovert that likes being around people and needs that to thrive. We're wired for connection and I like how you seek out support. Some people, they feel lonely. We've been in quarantine for COVID for so long, at least some of us have. It can definitely feel lonely. And so maintaining those connections is super important. And you're an extrovert, so you thrive Mm -hmm. off of people, those interactions. and And that's why 2020 has been hard too. And this is something I've actually realize more and more is how much I need connection and I need to get out of the house compared to 
other people that I know that have said that it's the best for their life because they don't have to see anyone and they can just be at home and and they don't need that human connection. They don't need to get out of the house to, to feel fine. And I realized that, especially as I wasn't employed during the last six months, I need to see people and I need to interact with them to to feel good. I think we all need to at least connect to people, maybe not every day or every week, but maintain some sort of connection because that's just how we're wired. Another thing you said was when you feel overwhelmed over the years, it almost has been unconscious in that you've coped well. I wonder to what extent it was related to you having learned helpful strategies for coping with stress, because I know one of the terms in therapy that they use, like the buzzwords, I guess, are coping skills, coping strategies, which skills can be learned. They have to be practiced to be able to be internalized and used even to the point of being unconscious when using them, that they're just out of our awareness. We're using them because we practice them. I know a lot of people want to be able to cope immediately, but it takes practice. And it sounds like you've been able to do that over time by reaching out. Sometimes when we're overwhelmed, that's the last thing we feel like doing. Maybe a reason that I'm having trouble answering this question is that I think when we hear about coping skills, you often hear stories of people having one coping skill that completely saved them. It was their passion from here on out and they can't live without it. I don't know, something like horse riding or riding or making music. I think we've all heard stories like that. For me, it definitely wasn't the case. And I think for a lot of people, it's not the case. And it's very, very frustrating when you first start off in recovery and trying to find out coping skills. I think when you have such a strong coping skill that is an addictive one, that is something that is that has become so close and dear to your heart, it's very, very rare, actually, I think, to find that one coping skill that would save you and that will last through all your recovery. I think for most people, I don't know, something like five or maybe even ten small coping skills that will amount to make you feel as good as self-harming does because it's become something so big in your life and one reason you keep doing it is it works every time it's very reliable it's not a great way not a good thing to do it's not a healthy thing to do but it's pretty reliable at least in the short term i think a lot of people don't have that immediate coping skill that works every time and you only need one thing and it's it works as well as self-harm. I definitely didn't have that. And I think that's maybe why I'm having trouble answering that question too. And I think there's something to say for that because yes, the self-injury is immediate. The effects are immediate. The coping, the emotion regulation happens pretty much immediately. Whereas if you are journaling, that's not very immediate. You have to formulate your thoughts, articulate your feelings, write it down. It takes a while to write down and any other coping strategy doesn't work as quickly. But I think sometimes part of growing as people too is learning to tolerate that distress that we don't necessarily have to immediately escape our emotions, but sometimes we can tolerate them. They're not always as scary. When we get rid of them so fast, let's say self-injury, I know it can be immediate. Sometimes it impairs our ability to be able to learn how to cope long-term. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think thinking about it now, that was one of the biggest things and one of the biggest coping skills I learned over the years is that you can sit with your urge and you can sit with your discomfort and you don't actually have to act on it it can pass and you can find other ways. You can sort of learn to be patient with yourself and with the urge. God knows it's very hard and it's very intense, but it can work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important point, being able to differentiate between our thoughts and our actions. Just because we think something doesn't mean we have to act on it. Just because we feel something doesn't mean we have to act on it, which is a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of CBT there. 
Are you still participating in therapy? No, I haven't for something like two years. I just came to a point where I would go to therapy and we didn't have anything to discuss. So we gently phased it out and gradually stopped because I just didn't need it anymore. And it sounds like you had such a good experience that you'd be willing to return to therapy in the future should you need it. Yeah, definitely. And I actually have a few times uh, just seen her for a couple of sessions when I had some issues that I needed some professional help with. You had used the word recovery just a little bit ago. I want to go back to that. Recovery in relationship to self-injury. What does the term recovery mean to you? I think this is a pretty hard question. And like you said, uh, you're asking about me. I think recovery means something very different to everyone. I don't think you can have one definition of what okay. self-harm recovery means or looks like for everyone. To me, I think recovery means more than whether you're still self-harming or not. It means more than just stopping self-harm. I think it means dealing with what was underneath it, learning about how you work, learning about yourself, learning to discover yourself. And really for me, I don't think this is what it means to everyone, but to me, it means learning useful things that can be useful for other things in your life and for others. Well, so it's more than just stopping self-injury. There's so much more to recovery. Yeah, exactly. At least to me. For you. Yeah. And, and I like that you had pointed out recovery means something different to everyone. And so that's a question I like to ask people. Some people hate that word. Some people love that word. And it means different things to different people. I think for some people, uh, recovery doesn't mean not self-harming anymore. I think some people would consider themselves in recovery and still self-harm. Maybe for them it means uh, self-harming less or it means something completely different. I think it's mm -hmm. very important, like you said, to stay open to this and what people's priorities are in terms of their mental health. You have had a lot of experiences, whether you're a family doctor, an inpatient program for children, and then one for teenagers, and then a therapist. You've had some great experiences, and you've had some bad experiences. What misunderstandings, if any, did other people have about self-injury in relationship to you, whether misunderstandings from your friends, your family, your parents, teachers, even your therapists or family doctor? We've already talked about one of them from my mom, meaning that self-harm is only something that occurs in deep mental health crises, things like psychosis and all of that, or with people that have severe intellectual disabilities. Actually, if you go by the ISS's definition, which I do because I think it's the best, these wouldn't really actually be considered self-harm, or at least NSSI, non-societal self-injury. That in itself is another issue. My dad had a very hard time understanding what was the benefits that would come from self-harm. He was nice about it. He wasn't dismissive about it or anything. But he told me that he didn't really understand why I was doing this. The analogy that he used that I really like is that almost everyone has had a glass of wine, two glasses of wine, gotten a bit tipsy and liked it. And so he could understand why people would become addicted to alcohol. But everyone has had an injury, fallen over, and gotten hurt and have not liked it one bit. And so he could not relate to why I would like the pain. And that's a whole topic in itself. Do we really like the pain? Or do we like really that's coming from it? Can you really say that mm -hmm. uh, someone that struggles with alcohol addiction likes wine, likes alcohol, or can you say that they like the relief that comes from it? I think this is an entire discussion in itself. I don't really think that self-harm is like pain, but that's beside the point. One that really stuck out to me is that my brilliant psychiatrist that was prescribing me my meds for a long time, 
he was brilliant. He was very lovely, very well educated. I had no idea that self-harm could be an addiction. And that really threw me off. And I had to kind of teach him about it and tell him that to me, at least, it really worked like an addiction. What about friends when they found out? Any misunderstandings in their responses? I think even though they may not have said it, I think a lot of them were wondering whether it was attention-seeking, which in my case, I don't think it was. And side point, this is again a whole other debate, but what is wrong with attention-seeking when you're very, very hurt and when you need social support? If someone is self-harming and they're doing it for attention, if they're that desperate for attention, I think we should listen to them. In my case, I don't think there was an attention component. There may have been, but at least I don't think it was the primary reason. But I think there was definitely um, something that came off from my friends sometimes. Sounds like the inaugural episode, episode one, (laughs) this part of our conversation feels like kind of going back to some of those misunderstandings. You personally experienced some of those. I did. One huge part that we haven't mentioned is all the religious bits, but I come from uh, a perspective where religion slash Christianity was not helpful at all. And it's actually something I've grown away from in recovery, but I know this is a very sensitive topic and I know for a lot of people praying and the community that comes from Christianity, uh, from religion, from any kind is really a huge part of their recovery. So I don't want to be insensitive to anyone's experience here, but mm. before my parents knew and before I got professional help, Most of my support was peer-based and was faith-based. Most of my support came from my church youth group and from the leaders in there who actually weren't trained at all, who were very young adults, maybe were like five years older than me or something like that. The support I got from there was basically that while I was experiencing my addiction, my suicidal tendencies were because of demonic possession that came from music I was listening to, from my environment, basically kind of saying it was my fault. And that for that, Mm. I needed to pray and I needed exorcisms, which I got two of them, uh, which didn't help and which only led to the situation deteriorating for a year before my parents found out and got me help. Wow. So they thought you had demons that needed to be exercised out of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I can imagine would be pretty traumatizing for a teenager or anyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't think the appearance of the exorcism per se was what was the most traumatizing. I think what was the hardest was getting the sense that it was my fault and that mm. not getting cured from the exorcism meant I didn't want to get cured and meant that it was in my hands and that I didn't want to give it away, which is, yeah. Again, I don't want to sound insensitive. I know for a lot of people, faith and religion is a huge part of their recovery and is something that's very helpful to them and provides great support to them. I just want to say that it wasn't my experience. And in my experience, it's only delayed me getting evidence-based treatments and secular treatments, which is what helped me in the long term. Another part is that they knew my parents very well. They didn't tell my parents, even though they knew I was suicidal and they knew I was self-harming a lot. They actually worked with my parents, some of them, not all of them, because my parents worked in the church I was going to. I think uh, youth group leaders should be trained somewhat, at least, in mental health, especially if they're working with teenagers, because this is one of the time in life where a lot of things can happen regarding your mental health. 
So you're saying that your your youth group, the peers and the youth pastors knew about your self-injury, but did not tell your parents. No. And so they took it into their own hands and tried to do a couple of exorcisms rather than potentially realize that maybe the problem was a struggle that you were having that many people have that may or may not be spiritual. I think you make a good point as far as religion and faith is really helpful for so many people when it comes to recovery and finding support. But when you're blamed, that's more of a reflection probably on their faith. I don't really know what happened, honestly. I think we were a group of teenagers and young adults that kind of got into each other's heads and needed strict rules to go through life and go through society and go through what we were living and having such a rigid view of society and what's good and what's bad and what's holy and what's satanic, I think it's what happened. It's easy to cast stones at things that we don't understand or don't struggle with. And I think a lot of people experience that. And in your case, your youth group didn't understand your struggle. So rather than try to understand it, they tried to not necessarily cast stones at it, but in a way blame you for your inability in recovering and stopping self-injury. And one thing I I think about often, and even as a psychologist in doing therapy with adolescents in similar circumstances that you were in, is who's to say God can't use cognitive behavioral therapy or a therapist, and that is the way that God works in these situations, integrating faith, religion, and recovery or cessation of self-injury and help with mental health disorders. I think it's like you said, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I don't think you need to have either an exorcism slash faith-based help or secular evidence-based help. Why can't you have both? And why can't you encourage both? Why can't you encourage practicing your faith? Because it gives you meaning in life and it gives you community and it gives you a sense of calmness. Also, having medication, having therapy, having hospital stays, why can't you do both? Not have such a black and white view of how things in life work. Perhaps that was their own understanding of their faith as opposed to a more balanced, accurate understanding of the Christian faith, which you had mentioned was related to compassion and love and in these cases, support and being supportive rather than punitive. Yeah, I think we could have a six-hour theological debate on that whole situation. And I think there's a lot at play, partly at least being a teenager and having this black and white thinking a lot of the time with good things, bad things, Christian things, unchristian things. Also, what responsibility we give youth group leaders. I do plan to have one or two episodes in the future talking about religion, faith, and self-injury and research and how for people it can be helpful. Part of your story wasn't as helpful. Knowing what you know now, here you are 22 years old, what would you tell your 14, 15-year-old self when she first started self-injuring? This is, again, a hard question because I've changed so much since then. Mm -hmm. I think I would tell myself that's What I'm going through is not normal, that it will pass and it can pass and I can grow from it. And that help is available. Also, I think I would tell myself very personally, this is for me, that you can reach out to your parents, that you don't need to be more grown up than you already are. I think this is a common thing with teenagers and especially with myself. I've always wanted to be more grown up than I am currently. (laughs) I've always been a very independent person that wants to do everything by herself and all of that. I would definitely tell my younger self that you can reach out to your parents. This is not something that is as scary as you think, and it can be very beneficial. Maybe they can share their, well, in these cases, people that are in 
your shoes when you were 14, if they could point their parents to this podcast to be able to hear that, they might be able to respond more compassionately and be ready in those moments. I like what you said, though. Uh, You don't have to be more grown up or more independent than you already are. And one thing I think about, too, do we really need to prove ourselves to other people? And it sounds like you're basically telling your teenage self you don't need to prove yourself to other people how independent or how strong you are. You're not the one that needs to protect your parents. Your parents need to protect them. I think why I wasn't telling them also came down to me wanting to protect them from the pain they would feel when they would find out. But I think it's very rare for, at least when it's going on for as long as it did for me for a year, if it's not just kind of a one-off thing, which can happen too, I think it's very rare for parents not to find out. So they're going to find out eventually. So does delaying it really does it any good? Does it make it any better if you're waiting for them to know? I think it's actually better for them to find out sooner if they can get you treatment like they did for me. That is great. And I do know people are genuinely concerned how their parents might react because they've seen their parents react to other people in similar situations and maybe it wasn't so positive. So that makes sense to me. But here you are now, you've started this YouTube channel. You have a large following there on Instagram. Thank you. That's sweet. (laughs) That's very (laughs) sweet for you. I don't think I have a large following, but thank you so much. Well, I know you also had gotten hacked at some point and you lost a lot of those followers and are trying to get back to that. But you started that in 2016, is that yeah, right? That's right. You must have been around 18 years old when you started that? Yeah, I was, yeah. Two, three years after you stopped self-harming. So what made you decide to start these different social media accounts? I think all of it came down to me being so frustrated of seeing how little coverage self-harm was getting. And how much even professionals knew almost nothing about it. I don't think all of my motivation for self-harm problems comes from this, but a large part of it comes from all of the experiences I've had with professionals that didn't know enough about self-harm, were not trained enough about self-harm. Seeing how little coverage self-harm gets in the media or previous coverage it gets in the media, how little um, general public knows and all of that. So this is why one of my main goals is self-harm awareness and self-harm education. I think I could say evidence-based education, because a lot of the time, I think you had a post about that on Instagram that I really liked, is that most people, when they cover self-harm, they cover it in a way that is not evidence-based, saying, for example, that uh, most people are suicidal, or one you will often hear is that eating disorders are considered self-harm. This is one that really grinds my gears. Or saying that it's mostly something that affects women, which is not what the data shows, or only slightly. So this is also one thing that is very dear to my heart, is staying evidence-based and sticking to what the research shows. That's great. So some negative experiences that you had in the past, you've turned into a positive by trying to provide education to other people, including professionals through social media and sharing that kind of content. Yeah, that's what, that's my goal, definitely. And another one of my goal is to show people that are currently struggling with self-harm that they're not alone, that some people have gone through it and have gone out of it. And even if you don't get out of it, there are things that you can do to manage it better. Not saying that I'm the one providing therapy or anything close to that, but providing peer support is what it comes down to and sharing other people's stories and trying to show hope. And also kind of sharing the details that no one talks about when it comes to struggling with self-harm and all of those weird emotions that you can have. Not everyone has them, but I think a lot of people have them. Things like what I have called the Bicot syndrome, which is this feeling of competition and not feeling like your cuts or 
self-harm of any kind is good enough and which then fuels this feeling that you're not good enough of a self-harmer and also everything that comes down to why some people do not want to recover and not saying that they shouldn't but this almost kind of Stockholm syndrome that you get from your self-harm and everything that it has given you and how it can kind of become your comfort blanket and all of that everything that when I was in therapy all the feelings that I had while I was still self-harming and that I thought I was so worried for having and that I was the only one having them I then now try to speak out about them and reach out to people that then say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was so worried for thinking that and feeling that, and I'm so glad I'm not. This is also what I'm trying to do. And do you perceive or see self-harmer problems, your social media pages being part of your story, your recovery story, and helping yourself through all of this or make sense of your past? Yeah, definitely. I think telling my story and helping others has been a huge part of my recovery, actually. And I think, like we said before, making light of what happened to me and giving it meaning and giving it sense and helping others uh, has been a huge help and is something that is very meaningful to me. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents? Well, for parents, I know this, this is probably a very hard time of your life and it can be extremely scary and, and shocking because I, I know it was for my parents. I would say, I know this is hard, but try to stay as compassionate and as empathetic to your kids as you can. If you need to take time away to deal with your own emotions, because God knows you're probably having a lot right now, that's completely fine. But try to stay as present and empathetic to your kid as you can and try to get them the best professional help that you can. I know this is probably a very trying time for you. I'm not a parent but God knows how I would react to my future kid potentially self-harming. That would be devastating. But I think trying to stay as calm and empathetic to your kid is the best you can do for them. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians like therapists, psychologists, or researchers? I think there's two very important things. One is educate yourself on NSSI and what it means and what treatments is available and common misconceptions and all of that, because I'm quite tired of having professionals propagating misinformation and researchers propagating misinformation. I think we can all do better in that. And the second thing is close to what I said for parents is try to stay empathetic, trying not to promote any feelings of inadequacy or not being enough that the person in front of you may already have. Stay empathetic and educate yourself on self-harm. And what would you recommend to other people with lived experience of self-injury? Well, I would tell them that there is support and help available out there, even though maybe they feel like they're at the end of their rope. I firmly believe that anyone can get better, even if maybe it doesn't mean stopping self-harm completely, at least for now and for you. I think there's always ways to get better and to reach out for support. I think you can do it. You are a member of IS. It is correct. One, how did you find out about IS? And two, what made you decide to join as a member? I actually found out when I was doing the script for my very first YouTube video, which is extremely cringy. Please don't go watch it. I really need to redo it. But my first ever video that I wanted to make, which was, I think, three years ago, two years ago, maybe, was what is self-harm? And I was looking for a definition of self-harm and I found the ISSS definition of self-harm and I thought it was a very, very good definition. This is the one I go by to this day. 
So this is how I found out about the ISSS. I looked into it and found out that it was basically the leading organization on self-harm and NSSI. When I say self-harm, I mean NSSI. To me, it's interchangeable. This is how I found out about uh, the ISSS. Then I decided to become a member because I realized the ISSS and I had the same goal of promoting awareness and research for self-harm and ways to help people uh, with lived experience. I'm glad you joined. I, I love having people with lived experience of self-injury as part of an international organization like IISSS and to be able to bring a unique perspective. I mean, this is your life. This is your story. And it's always nice to bring those into the research, bring that into the clinical work like therapy. I know we have a lot of listeners from Europe. They're going to be able to listen to your story from Switzerland. Is there anything else you'd like to add? It really means a lot to me to be here and to hear everything that you've just said. It's it really warms my heart to be part of all of that and to have my story mean something and to be able to use it. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us because I, I really do believe that we as humans, we've passed down stories through generations and we're changed by stories, especially people who are similar to us. So for those listening, one, wanting to get a better understanding of why someone might self-injure and build that empathy and that compassion. And two, to be able to have those who have gone through it themselves to know that there's someone else out there, they're not alone, and there is hope. There's ways to make meaning the struggle. And I know you've done that in a lot of different ways, including through your social media page. So thank you, Malika, very much for joining us and sharing your heart and your life story that's very private, yet obviously now very public. Thank you for, for participating. I think it'll be such a good episode for people to oh, hear. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to be part of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.